0: And of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, on this wonderful Sunday morning, uh, overjoyed to see all your smiling faces today. As I mentioned earlier, we're starting our, our new sermon series. It's going to be about six sermons long, and we're going to look at how can we live lives that that are resilient uh, in in a culture, in a world, in our lives that so often feel. Uh, absolutely chaotic and uncertain. And so uh, that's what we're going to walk through. But today we're going to start just with that singular topic of uh, what does maturity look like? Do any of you ever watch this slide? (laughs) Can you go to the next slide, guys? I don't know if my clicker's not working. Any of you ever watch Forged in Fire? Some of you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Let me give you the synopsis of it. They have, uh, um, oh boy, what do you call it? Uh, Forgers? No, what's the name? No, forgers. Blacksmiths. They have blacksmiths compete against one another. Uh, They have different metals that they have to use and they have to create certain blades and certain knives and swords and things like that. Um, And so these blacksmiths are kind of put into it. They've got a time crunch and, and... they are expected to produce something beautiful by the end. If you haven't seen it, it's kind of a fun show uh, because you get to see the whole process and it's, it's sped up, of course, uh, but, but you see them take, uh, at times, just absolute hunks of metal. Sometimes it's just like uh, 55-gallon drums full of random metallic parts uh, and, by the end, create something that, in some sense, would be usable, is beautiful, uh, and what the judges asked of them. So it's one of my more favorite shows, it's one of those shows that you can kind of just watch, uh, put on in the background um, because every single one is about the same, right? Uh, forge something, let's look at it at the end, see if it cuts, that's about it, so. Um, but it's a fascinating process and I don't, some of you may actually uh, know how to forge or be uh, like kind of hobby blacksmiths. My son, Drew, tried doing it for a while so, so he said, uh, um, I, I want to I forge, I want to be a, a blacksmith, and I said, well, Drew, that's great, but you know, we live in the suburbs, like <laughs> a little bit difficult, and he said, well, so he's undeterred, he said, no, I can still do it. He said, I looked it up online, I, I watched YouTube videos, and so for about, I'd say about a year, year and a half, in my backyard, there was an in-ground forge. Um, he didn't forge a lot of things. He did melt my shop vac, which was used to pump air in, um, and I think he probably lost 15 pounds of weight because in the summer, he's out there, and I looked out my back window, and he's forging things. He's heating up things in the ground, but of course, it gets very, very hot, and so then he put on all of his uh, snowboarding outfits, so he had a full hat on, and he had gloves, and he had all, all of his ski equipment on in order to protect him against, against the heat, and this was the middle of the summer, so yeah, I think he lost... Lost 15 pounds, right? But um, the show is fun, and I think even that idea of creating something uh, um, through fire, through heat, uh, through through pounding and through pressure, and turning it into something that is incredibly useful, um, even at times incredibly beautiful. I think we get that, right? I, I think we can see the draw of that. It serves as somewhat of an illustration of what we're going to talk about in the coming weeks when we talk about the pressures, the pain, sometimes even the fire of living in this life, how does God use it? How has he shaped you? How is he shaping you ultimately for the good of the people around you, right? Picture you see here. Anyone know what this is called? Yeah, Damascus steel. Yeah. So uh, if you don't know, Damascus steel is one of the prettier ones. I've got a couple knives at home of Damascus steel. Um, It gets this kind of swirled shape uh, from layer after layer of steel that is kind of um, um, heated, cooled, hammered, heated, cooled, hammered, all the way through the process. So over time, it kind of gets this beautiful, swirled, layered process. Uh, Damascus steel is maybe one of the more, the more obvious um, examples of that layering process. But the truth is, um, if you want a, a blade that is not only beautiful but also functional... That's the process. So, some of you, if you've done blacksmithing, uh, you take steel, and steel is incredibly hard, right? But the best swords, the best knives, the best um, um, creations kind of are two different things. And I think we know this intuitively. You don't need just hard, right? You, you want a sword to be hard, and this is an example of. Uh, one of the most famous swords in our world today. Uh, This is about a $100 million sword. It was owned, it was used by Fukushima Masanori. So this is a samurai Tachi. Uh, But yeah, $100 million plus. The reason it's worth so much money is a combination of a couple things. Uh, Number one, it's beautiful. You know, we can look at it. Number two, though, it was incredibly useful. So in the world of... Forging of blacksmithing, uh, uh, Japanese samurai swords are are renowned uh, and usually held up as some of the best examples of blacksmithing uh, and of of swords for sure. Because of that, they needed to be two different things. A sword can't just be strong because then that makes it brittle. And so if you're in battle and you've got a really, really strong, a really, really hard sword, but it snaps, you're in trouble. But the other side of it is true too. So a sword can't be so soft that it loses its edge as soon as it hits something hard. And so the best swords, the best that our world has seen generally, are samurai swords made in Japan. And they are a unique combination of two things. Hardness, but also flexibility. So they're incredibly hard, but they will also keep their edge and they won't break. This is probably the best example of that. Uh, I brought a long one for you here today. This one is not worth $100 million. Uh, this one you can buy in a knife shop and it's a replica and that's about it. Um, Eric asked me kind of timidly if this was gonna be my illustration for the kids lesson and I said no. I said I saved that for the adults, so. Uh, but, right, strong and yet flexible is what makes the best swords and the most useful swords that our world has ever seen. That also, I think, is a good illustration for where we are headed in this sermon series and on some level where we want to be as adults, right? We want a a resiliency to be able to live in our world, to be able to, to withstand the blows, the difficulties, the suffering, and the pain Um, without breaking, but also being useful, right? Being a blessing to those around us. And so the best examples are a rare combination of strength and hardness, but also of that flexibility. Today, that's what we want to look at. The Apostle Paul is going to give us a picture of that. um, And I think that's probably a pretty good definition of what maturity actually looks like. Resiliency in the life of us as a Christian. So let's jump into our text here today. Uh, You're welcome to follow along with me if you would like. I'm going to test my clicker one more time. Nope, still not working. So I'm going to rely on you guys to, we'll just, because we're connected mentally, you'll know exactly what we're, thanks, Kate. so. so you're welcome to follow along with me today. These are going to be the three points that we're going to go through. If you are a very studious person, um, which I was not, maybe you are, uh, these are going to be our three points and we're actually going to fill in the blank too. So if you want to fill them in, uh, we'll kind of do that. Uh, but we want to talk about grace, we want to talk about ultimately um, where our eyes should be and then we're going to finish with that twin con- those twin concepts of both truth and love. So that's kind of, kind of where we're headed. Um, a little bit of historical context where we're at in our text, and you're more than welcome to follow along in your bulletins if you would like. Uh, otherwise, I'll have that text up on the screen here as well. Um, and go ahead, Kate, if you can go to that first, very first verse. Uh, Paul says this, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And so a couple things right off the bat. Uh, This letter to the Christian church in Ephesus was written by the Apostle Paul. And he tells us exactly where he was at, right? Literally writing from prison. And so he talks about those two things. Number one, um, Paul understood pain and suffering. We talk about forging, right? Uh, Talk about what a blacksmith use. At times it's heat. It's extreme heat. Paul was one that understood that. Uh, The writing of this text to that church in Ephesus uh, was written from prison. And so he knew on some level exactly what it felt like to feel the pressures of living as a believer, as a Christian in a world and in a culture that generally was hostile against it. Paul knew that, in fact, um, that's what led him to be in a prison cell. And while he's there, what is he doing? continuing to teach, right? Continuing to try to help the next generation of believers that were coming after him to mature in their faith. And so that's the setting of our text that we're going to look at here today. It's one where Paul knew exactly the pressures of what it meant to live out your faith. But I would guess on many levels you understand that as well. Uh, The world in which we live, I think, is changing maybe more rapidly than we can remember in the past. It's always changing, but I think the, cha- the cultural changes and sea changes that we have experienced in the last 10, 20, 30 years are something that's a little unprecedented, uh, at least for us uh, as a nation. And my guess is, is that you felt that. Um, it's no secret that uh, most uh, sociologists and theologians will say that America has moved into what we would call a Uh, we are a post-Christian society, right? So, uh, numbers and percentages of those that are in church doing what you're doing on a Sunday morning, so let's just take 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning, uh, about between 15 to 18% maybe uh, of Americans are doing that on a given Sunday morning. If you want a little bit of context, you go back to post-World War II and those percentages were well above 50% on any given Sunday morning. Okay, So, the nation, the culture in which we live, has changed drastically just in the last 10, 20, 30 years. And I would guess that you have felt that, that you feel that, right? As we live our lives uh, within our families, within our communities, with our neighbors, you have felt that. It is more likely that the, the majority of the friends, family, and people you know um, have no church home and would not call themselves Christians. 30 years ago, that would have been completely flipped, So the question we get to ask of ourselves then, and maybe that's a little bit what Paul is asking us to ask of ourselves is, now what? What does God ask of us that know who Christ is? What does God ask of us and, and how we live our lives in a culture and in a world, in a community and even in our families that has changed Drastically. That's what we want to look at today. Paul's urging those Christians in Ephesus, pushing them towards maturity. He does the same for us today as well. So, let's go to our next section of text here. I'm going to read for you verses 2 through 7. It says this, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, but to each one of us, a grace has uh, us grace has been given, as Christ apportioned it. So I picked out a few things for you in this opening text. Um, you can see how often uh, Paul is urging them, kind of back to a singular source, right? One body, one spirit, one hope, uh, one faith, one baptism. Uh, theologians have pulled that apart and, and said that uh, on some level, Paul is actually kind of mimicking, uh, pointing out the parts of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, but in the end, he is pointing directly to the source, uh, not only of our salvation, but also of our maturity as believers. And so he kind of hits them and us with that 1111 but here's how he ends it with that word grace. And I think that's where we need to start if we want to talk about living our lives as uh, that are resilient, that look like mature Christians. Grace is where we have to start and I'd argue grace is also where we end. That is not only what powers our Christian living, but it picks us up when we fail. See, Paul and the believers in Ephesus would understand that, and I think we do as well. How often we fall so far short. We talk about that concept of, Christian, or of maturity. Um, how often our actions, our words, the thoughts of our hearts are not giving glory and honor to our God above, but rather maybe look no different than the world around us. Or maybe even worse, are simply selfish and self-serving. And so, what do we need? We need something miraculous. We need this concept called grace, and you have that in Christ. It is the thing that, that not only changes hearts from death to life, but what's interesting how Paul uses it here is not only has grace changed our hearts from death to life, specifically the grace of Jesus Christ having laid down his life on the cross for you, so you would know your sins are forgiven. Not only that grace, but it's interesting how Paul uses it here. He talks about it being apportioned out to each and every one of us. What's fascinating is, grace is not only what we have as a gift from Christ, but it's also an ongoing gift that we have from our Lord above, Grace poured into our hearts, into your lives, through Jesus Christ, through the words of Scripture that empower our Christian living And help us grow and move us towards maturity. And so, right from the start, Paul tells you that you have everything you need to be a mature Christian. And maybe that's a little bit of a question sometimes for us. I don't know where all of you are at on your your spiritual journey, on your Christian journey in faith, right? Some may be very new, right? Some of you have been in church every day of your lives. for a long, long time. But no matter how long we have known Christ or how short of time we've known Christ, Paul is saying we go back to the exact same source each and every time, Christ's grace, and how God um, shares that, pours that out into our lives. And so that kind of brings us to our very first point. Go ahead, grace leads, right? Because that's ultimately what leads us toward lives of maturity, right? To be able to live in ways that are seen as mature and that are resilient in the world around us, right? Grace is where we go to and it is what empowers us. Let's jump into the next few verses of our text. Verse 13 and on. It says, Until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature. So this is the word we're kind of zoning in on here today. Uh, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. And so that word mature, Paul kind of elaborates on it, right? But, but it... He is pointing our eyes, taking our eyes ultimately off of our kind of temporary situation and saying maturity looks beyond that. Go ahead and go to the next slide there, Cade. Uh, this is a high school football field. Do you see anything wrong with it? Lines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is not awesome lines. Uh, I, this is not my picture, by the way, but... I painted lines on our football field uh, in high school and in college. I was kind of on the grounds crew, and so they put you out there, and it's just a machine with uh, um, spray cans that you put in upside down, and it's about it. You pull a handle, and they say, go. So this is about what my first line looked like, the first time I ever painted lines on a football field. Um, And it was not from lack of trying. So I, I had the machine and I'm just like concentrating, right, because I'm a young guy and the whole ground crew is like kind of watching me. In fact, when I think back to it, it may have been a setup a little bit. So I'm concentrating and I'm going slow and meticulous and, and kind of making my way along. And then I look back and that's what my lines looked like. You want to know what my problem was? I was concentrating too much, but my view was about a foot in front of my feet. There's no way you can take a straight path to anything when all you're doing is looking down. So one of the old timers, his name was Mike, um, he said, here's what you got to do. He said, just pick a pine tree or pick an object in the distance. He said, set your eyes on the pine tree. And he said, just walk towards it. I did it. I look back, beautifully straight line, right? It's a good example, maybe even a good definition of what it means to have maturity, doesn't it? We are not constantly looking at ourselves. We are not constantly only thinking about our issues, our problems, and looking inward. We are not merely uh, eyes-focused, tunnel vision on what is happening right in front of us. But a pretty good definition of maturity is, is that we are able to look in the distance where we want to head. Now, why is that important for us as believers? Because I think it's important for us to look at the goal, not just at the momentary, temporary troubles maybe that are at our feet. I think Paul knew that as well. That word, maturity, uh, it's actually the Greek word, um, and it actually means uh, um, to to finish, to finish something off, right? So um, that, that Greek word has this idea of um, it's been completed, it's final, uh, everything's been wrapped up, and it's kind of off there in the distance. Paul actually uses that word telees a couple more times in the New Testament. Go ahead, Cade. He uses it in Hebrews 5.14 in this way. He says, But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good and evil. And so in this one, he's saying uh, um, that maturity looks like being able to understand and able to discern what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, what is profitable and what is destructive. That's what maturity looks like, right? Go ahead to the next one, Kate. He also uses in 1 Corinthians. He said, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom. So again, back to that, among the mature. But not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. And so Paul connects that use of mature in two different ways. Number one, being able to discern what is right and wrong, good and evil, what is profitable and destructive. But also, he he highlights that Christian maturity is a wisdom that stands outside of culture. So he's saying it is not the wisdom that the culture around us in Rome at that time is saying is wise. He's saying it is something different. It is something other. It is something bigger. It is something that, that crosses generations and nations and ethnicities. It is something that is far larger than ourselves. And so what Paul is doing for you and for us is saying Christian maturity looks not to the culture around us and not selfishly just at our own feet in the momentary troubles we have, Christian maturity focuses our eyes on something that is far bigger than us. Ultimately, Christ and God and that gift of grace. And so, we want to be mature Christians. We want to be resilient Christians in our world. Our eyes can't be a foot in front of our feet. Our eyes have to be up, focused on the goal, which is our next fill-in-the-blank. So... Eyes up. Let's go to our next text there, Kate. Verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head that is Christ. And so, this last one, I highlighted those two kind of twin concepts that Paul leaves us with. As believers, if we want to be mature, we seek to speak. The truth in love. And isn't that a little bit interesting, right? Going back to my opening illustration, uh, the importance of a quality sword to be both both firm and hard, but also um, on some level flexible to be able to withstand those blows or resilient. It's a little bit what Paul's talking about here. Right? Um, um, he, is, he is urging us to do both of those things to to share, to speak, and to hold to the truths that God has laid out for us on the pages of Scripture. And at the heart of all of that is Christ and His grace. And so Paul is urging us to stand on truth that there is right and there is wrong. That we stand on the the beautiful truths of Scripture which at times stand outside of the culture in which we live. So Paul is urging us to stand firm, right, in truth. But he's also telling us to do it in love, right? Because those truths, and specifically that grace, is what the world around us desperately needs. And so Paul urges us, share that message, speak those truths in a loving way, right? Which leads to our last point. Because truth and love last. You want a quality blade, you want a blade that is not only beautiful but is useful that's how we do it, right? This was not planned. Uh, well, the samurai sword was planned. Um, the sermon was written, uh, the majority of it was written about Thursday for you today. Um, so the, the Lord has an interesting way of timing things, um, which is also going to kind of lead to our final point here this morning. Um, this... Samurai sword was actually given to me by my dad. So, uh, my dad, my, he's, he, we were kind of getting rid of all, a lot of my dad's stuff. They were downsizing things like that. So, I thought, okay, I'm going to use this as an illustration today. Uh, my dad was also a preacher as well. So, I thought, okay, he'd be pretty, pretty excited. I was using something of his as an illustration in a sermon. Uh, uh, but, but um, my dad was taken to his Lord on Friday. So, so but it's a great finishing point. We want to talk about maturity as believers. Then we ought to talk about on what our eyes are focused. And my dad's eyes were focused on Christ and his grace his entire life. What's the thing that you want as adults or grandparents? for your kids and for your grandkids? What is it that we want? Nothing more. Um, Maybe you'll give them trinkets. Maybe there'll be things that are left behind. But most importantly, if we could be so lucky to leave our kids and the next generation with grace, there's nothing better. It's a pretty good example of what Christian resilience looks like, right? So I'm sad today, right? Because my dad's gone. Uh, But it's not the end, because I'll see him again. There's joy in that, in knowing that, that his eyes were always focused on Christ. And there is ongoing lesson for me, for us, of keeping our eyes focused on the finish. Most importantly, on grace and in Jesus. I think that's a pretty powerful reminder for us of what Christian maturity can look like in your lives, with your family, with your friends, with your kids, with your grandkids. Let's, let's um, live our lives that are resilient, that are mature, and that consistently point to Christ and to his grace. Amen.